It's a joy to be back tonight to share worship together. Let's praise the Lord. I hope you brought your Bible with you. I will share from the book of Exodus first. Let's turn first to First Timothy, or rather First Peter, and then we'll turn to the book of Exodus, the 28th chapter. But First Peter, chapter 2, verse 9, makes a statement that links that portion with uh, the Old Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and if we can see ourselves in that biblical picture tonight, we'll go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, chapter uh, 38, I believe it is. No, it's 28, I'm sorry. Chapter 28, from verse 31 through verse 35, the Lord giving Moses specific instructions as to the garments that the priest should wear. And in order to go in to minister to the Lord as a royal priest, there was a specific kind of garment that was to be worn. And should it not be worn, should it not be followed according to God's prescribed pattern, the consequences were extremely severe. And I want you to notice that when we conclude verse 35. Look with me from verse 31. Thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an hole in the top of it. In the midst thereof thou shalt have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as if it were a coat of mail, that it would not tear. And beneath upon the hem of it thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth into the holy place before the Lord. And when he cometh out, that he, what? Die not. The consequences to having a different type of garment than what God had described and outlined was extremely severe. Had Aaron or any of the other priests who were ordained to minister, uh, for example, dressed in wool or some other kind of fabric, and not according to what God had prescribed for them, there would have been instant death. 
And so to come into the presence of God, we must come prepared, clothed, to worship. And I trust that you've come tonight properly dressed for worship. I'm not saying where you bought your clothes or what kind of style they are. We're talking about the spiritual implication of the priesthood. And what Peter says to us, we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. And as such, there are prescribed garments for the priests to wear. And should we enter the presence of God without being properly clothed, the consequences are extremely severe that he die not. Now when you read the rest of the chapter from 39 through 43, you'll notice several times the kind of material it was to be made of. Verse 39, thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen. Thou shalt make a mitre of fine linen. Verse 42, make linen breeches to cover his nakedness. And there is a repetition, only linen was to be worn. Now, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. What Exodus does not tell us, Ezekiel does. So if you'll turn to the book of Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 17 and 18, gives us just a bit more light on the reasons why linen was the prescribed garment to be worn, the fabric, the material that was to be worn by the priest. Ezekiel chapter 44. I'll give you a moment to find that. And it shall come to pass, verse 17 of chapter 44, it shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gate of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and no wool shall come upon them while they minister in the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets upon their head and shall have linen breeches upon their loins. They shall gird themselves, shall not gird themselves with anything, what? That causeth sweat. They were to gird themselves with only cool, crisp, clean linen, not wool, nothing that would cause sweat. Some people perspire, other people sweat. Now, if you have been uh, to Israel and you have uh, been there in the summertime and you picture with me what we have already shared uh, concerning that temporary tabernacle that God gave instru instructions to Moses how to build, 15 feet wide and 60 feet long, uh, a tent covering of badger skins and other materials, not a window in it, no ventilation, no current of air, no air conditioning. This was where the priests ministered. And going from Egypt to Palestine during those, those hot months, uh, it would been, have been difficult to keep cool. But the Lord had given specific instructions to the priests uh, 
And there are spiritual reasons why not wool was to be worn, but linen was to be worn so that nothing would cause sweat. Anyone recall where sweating originated? Where did perspiration come from, Don? From the Garden of Eden. After men sinned, there had been work before, but not sweat. And after, when God was pronouncing the curse upon Adam and Eve, he said, the ground will be cursed, and it will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. It becomes the, the uh, picture of men's carnal efforts and energies. Abel offered to God the fruit of the ground, which was produced by his own sweat, his own toil. Uh, Abel had produced a more excellent sacrifice as he had prepared a lamb for sacrifice and offered it to God. By faith, he offered it to the Lord. We recognize that in salvation, we have to come to a completed work. And by faith, we accept the grace of God, and then we have rested from our own labors. Paul said, not by what? Works of righteousness which I have done, but by his mercy I have been saved. And so there's no way that we can clothe ourselves with anything but the linen, which is the righteousness of the saints of God, which he provides for us. Our own goodness and our own works are as filthy rags, but he does something miraculous for us, and he provides a garment for us to wear. And it's his prescribed garment, not the energy and efforts of our own uh, carnal nature, but uh, the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ provided through Calvary, and we rest in a completed work. Now, I want us to see three things about these garments and, and our ministry to the Lord as priests tonight. First, they talk to us about the believer's position. Secondly, about his profession. And thirdly, possession. Our position in Christ as a priest to the Lord comes by grace. There isn't a thing we can do by ourselves, in ourselves, but to receive by faith. And we are not only saved by grace through faith, we, are, we serve the same way. It's not now, well, I'm saved now, so I've got to get busy and really work up a sweat for the Lord. What he's saying is our service must be acceptable in his sight only when it is done through the energy and anointing of the Holy Spirit. So many Christians feel like they have got to act holy. You don't have to act holy, you are holy. You don't have to act like a Christian, you are a Christian. You don't have to act righteous, you are righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Rest in him. And so it's not by struggle, even our service. If, you are, if you're working and toiling and sweating for God, it's not acceptable. 
we offer him, God is not interested in that which causeth sweat. Our ministry to the Lord must be by blood, not by sweat. Through the blood of the Lamb, through what Jesus did, not through what we do. So it's important for us to hear what God says to us, no sweat. No sweat. Rest in the Lord and trust in the Lord and receive from him the reality of the truth. It's not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord. I know of a gentleman who's going to be taking voice lessons and uh, reminded me of a story of a gentleman who was taking voice lessons and walked into a very particular proper large lady and she uh, was was very particular about the emphasis of of learning to sing properly so she said to the young man expire he didn't understand what she meant and he he said but i'm too young and she said, well, you don't know what I mean. I mean, empty your lungs completely. And so he just kind of went, Phew. she said, young man, that's not the way you expire. This is the way you expire. And she emptied every bit of air out of her lungs. He said it felt like she moved the grand piano about four feet back. And after she was always all the way out of her lungs, she said, now, young man, inspire. And he filled what he thought was his lungs. She said, oh, no, you will never learn to inspire until you've learned to expire. Until you learn how to empty out your lungs completely, you'll never really fill them completely. And there's a truth there for us. Until we learn how to expire and then be able to inspire, we're just going to perspire. going to be our own efforts, but we've got to empty it first. I am crucified with Christ. That's the expire. Nevertheless, I live. That's the inspire. Hallelujah. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's in the emptying out that we can fill ourselves more. The more we empty of the cavity, the more can be filled with his presence. The more can be filled. And if we only empty a little, he can only fill us a little. But if we'll empty it all, he'll fill us all. He'll fill us all. Not by anything that we can do, but if we will allow the world to be crucified to us and we are crucified to it, then the power of the Holy Spirit can accomplish what he wants to do. You see, it's not our mimicking Jesus or trying to act like Jesus, but it's letting Jesus be himself in us. Because there can only be one Jesus. And if I try to be like Jesus, I'm a cheap imitation. I'm a counterfeit because only Jesus can be Jesus. He can be himself in me if 
if I'll let him. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. We'll get to that just a little bit. But we need to learn to expire to be able to inspire. Not by our own abilities, but by the power of his Spirit. Not by trying, but by trusting in the Lord and giving ourself to him to use for his own glory. Not our own efforts. Unacceptable by itself. That we die not, that's how important it is. We can't offer to God the works of our flesh. Our own carnal efforts are not pleasing to the Lord. But uh, he has given us divine enablement to do it all. Our profession is based on it. Verse 24, if you go back to the 28th chapter with me of the book of Exodus. Exodus 28, 34. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. Now, if you don't have the robe, forget about the bells and the pomegranates because they are fixed to the robe. If you don't have the, the robe on, just making religious professions don't make you religious. Just making the right sounds doesn't make you a Christian. It's the robe that makes you a Christian. And then these uh, are fixed to the bottom of the robe. And so the profession, the bells must be kept ringing lest he died. And they were listening for that when Aaron or whatever other high priest went into the holy place or the holiest of all. As long as they heard the bells ringing, they knew he was alive. When the bells stopped ringing, they knew he had died. And he was to be removed from that place. The bells are a picture of our profession. If we're truly saved, we will sound the bells. And uh, a clear, refreshing sound, Romans 10, 9 and 10, tells us if we believe, then confession will follow. We believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth. Matthew 10, 32, he says, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you will not confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father. Mark 8, 38, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me in this sinful and, and, and wicked generation, of him will I be ashamed in my Father's presence. Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever believeth shall not be ashamed. And so that profession Uh, there must be a balance in our Christian life. There was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all the way around.
the hem of the garment. And one of the, the greatest things that's missing in the Christian church at times is balance. There's either a lot of bells ringing or there's a lot of emphasis on the fruit. But uh, what the priesthood of God, it's important for us to have both and have them both in balance. Have them not all of one and none of the other or an emphasis on one direction or the other, but a balance in our Christian lives of profession and possession. Some people, you know, make a lot of sound, but their life just doesn't back it up. And it doesn't really count for much as far as the world is concerned. They say, well, I, I hear what they're saying, but what they are speaks so loudly, it doesn't really uh, accomplish anything. Or there's other people who say, well, I'm letting my life speak, Pastor. I really don't say much at all. I'm just letting my life uh, and, and what I am as a Christian, let that do the talking for me. But you don't realize, you see, your life doesn't save anybody. It's Jesus that saves people. And you are who you are because of Calvary, and people need to know why you can live the way you can live. And so your life is not redemptive, but Jesus is redemptive. And Calvary is redemptive. And the reason you can live with grace and faith in your heart is because of Jesus. And at some point, you're going to have to tell them the reason for the hope that lies within you. So it's not enough to say, well, I'll let my life speak. I, I'm not much of uh, for giving testimony. I, I'm really not comfortable letting my bell ring. So I let my life do the speaking for me. Well, that's good. We need to let our life uh, do the speaking, but we need to speak with our lips too. There needs to be a balance between uh, the bells and the pomegranates in our life. Not an emphasis or overemphasis on one truth or another, whatever those truths are, but the key to good health is balanced diet. Balanced living. And the world will be drawn to that uh, profession and possession of life. The fruit, now you'll notice in Galatians 5, it does not say the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is. What's the reason for that? What significance would there be in the grammatical structure of that particular statement of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is. Don? Okay, good. All right, thank you. Okay, that he sure is. That's his nature. The fruit of the Spirit is. Now, don't confuse them with the gifts. You'll notice in the Bible that the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives severally as he wills, to one he gives the gift of tongues, to another he gives the gifts of interpretation, to another he gives the gift of miracles and the gift of faith. And so that the whole body is completed and edified, 
But you'll never find any verses anywhere that it says to one is given love and to another one joy and to another he gives peace and to another he gives long-suffering. Uh, that's not the way the Holy Spirit operates when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. They are singular and they are, they are for everybody universally alike. Not nine different fruits, but one fruit in nine equal sections. And uh, it is one fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is. And so nine uh, sections. You cut a grapefruit open and there are sections. You cut an orange open, there are sections. And uh, most fruit is divided into sections. And the fruit of the Spirit is. The nature and character of Jesus is. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what love is and what love is not. And you can go through and check off all nine of the fruit, uh, sections of fruit in love. And so that nature and character that we have been made partakers of by the Holy Spirit is to be produced through us by that same Spirit. Yes, Norma? Anyone want to answer that? I don't know. The significance of the pomegranate. Uh, just that it is a fruit and uh, it's difficult to eat. I know I've eaten them. But it is enjoyable. Okay. Anyone ever thought? Maybe you've read or yes. Does it have a sweet odor? I don't know. I know it has a lot of seeds. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's a significant thought too, that the seeds of reproduction are in the fruit. In the fruit, not in the tree, but in the fruit itself. And as the fruit is produced, the seeds are in the fruit. That's a good question, Norma. Yes. I know. You have to work at it. You have to work at it. Anything worth having has got some work to it. Yeah. I would think they would need replaced. Yeah. Okay, anybody else have a thought about pomegranates? Yeah. All right. 
Okay, thank you. That's good. Uh, I'm going to start to uh, find Marlboro Perman again and see if I can find out what he has to say uh, about pomegranates. You got me started. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit, which is important. Balance. That's really the thing. Now, there's a, a section that I want to, to conclude with tonight that I uh, felt like this was an introduction to. And I want you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and, and uh, we'll read from verse 21. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 21. thinking now in terms of the fact that the Lord in the Old Covenant felt it was of such great importance to stress the fact that this was necessary for acceptable ministry to him, lest he die. Now, I can't think of more severe consequences for God to lay emphasis upon uh, if we're going to come in to worship, if we're going to come before him and offer to him what uh, the rest of that verse was in First Peter, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, to what? Show forth praises unto him. Now he's talking about coming. You are all these things so that you might worship God, that you might come into his presence and minister to him and that's exactly what the high priest was to do as as a as a priest of God now there was a very particular way that he was to come and if he didn't he died if God was that holy in the old covenant is he not the same God in the new covenant God's holiness has not diminished at all from one covenant to another he is still God he does not change there's no variableness, there's no shadow of turning, so if God was that holy, then he's still that holy today. And if we are a royal priesthood, and if we're going to come into his presence, we cannot come all sweaty. Now we're not talking just physically, we're talking spiritually. Lest he die. We need to come, and if they came without the bells or the pomegranates, they would have died. It wasn't just the sweat. They needed to come in that way, with a balance, and with as God had prescribed for them to come. I've always wondered, if Jesus were to set the order of service, how would he have the order of service? Now, we, all, we have kind of a liturgy. You know, we have a free kind of worship, but we still have a liturgy that we follow. And sometimes you can almost set your clock. I was away on Sunday, and I looked at my watch, and I thought, well, by now, they're standing for prayer. <laughs> and by now, they're taking the offering. I hope they haven't forgotten to take the offering. <laughs> but if Jesus were writing out the order of service, what would he put first? wondered about that. If the Lord were to organize the service and he was ordaining the order of service, what would he put first? 
before any songs were sung, or how would he arrange the order of service? I think I found the answer here in Matthew 5, 21. Let's read it. I, ye have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother and without a cause is not really there, shall be in danger of judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberst thy brother hath aught against thee, leave thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time thine adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou canst are cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out from thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now, Jesus said something was important first. First, go be reconciled to thy brother. Then, come and offer thy gift. He's talking about an act of worship. He's talking about bringing an offering to God. He's talking about coming and offering something to the Lord. And he said, before whatever gift it is you have to give, if you remember your brother has ought against you first, first order of service, don't sing any songs to me. Don't offer any gift to me. Don't take up any offerings. Don't sing any solos. First, first order of service. Before anything else, be reconciled to thy brother. Then come back, sing your choruses, sing your songs, lift your hands, take up the offering, sing the solos, let the choir sing. But first, he said, before anything else takes place, you must be clothed in the right kind of garments. You've got to come into his presence in the right form and frame of mind.
the gift is not acceptable. Now, I'm going to say, and I, I've said this before, I always like to say at least one profound thing in every study, and here it comes. I always announce it for fear you'll miss it. So, here it is. The acceptability of any gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. The acceptability of any gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. The Lord loveth a cheerful gift. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. It says the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. He's not at all interested in the gift. He loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you come to offer your gift to the Lord, when you take out that envelope and put the check inside, he's not at all interested in the amount of or whatever. He's interested in looking into my heart and see what the condition of the giver is. Not by constraint, but willingly. The Lord loveth what kind? A cheerful giver. And so the acceptability of the gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. This high priest, the acceptability of, of whether or not he could live or die determined upon himself. Did he have on the linen garments? Did he have on the bells and the pomegranates? Did he come according to the prescription of God? Was he acceptable? If he was, he lived. If he was not, he died. And so whatever gifts we have to bring to the Lord before that gift is offered, whether that's the gift of preaching or the gift of singing or the gift of giving, that gift, whether or not it is acceptable, is determined by the acceptability of the giver. You see, man looks on the outward appearance, but God does what? Looks on the heart. And so that's really the critical thing. When, when I am going to preach and give that gift, it's not based on how orthodox my, my doctrine is or how eloquent my presentation is, it's not how accurate everything is. What God is interested in when I present the gift of the Word is not the gift, but what? The giver. When you stand to sing a solo, what's God interested in? Technique? Is He interested in all of the uh, technical qualities, tone control and breathing from your diaphragm. Gypsy Smith couldn't sing very well, and someone said to him, but brother, you should sing from your diaphragm. He said, I don't want to sing from my diaphragm. I want to sing from my heart.
What's the Lord listening for? Technical ability? Is he, is he listening for tone quality? What's he looking for in giving that gift? If it's coming from a giver whose heart is right toward him, it's acceptable if we're not one note is right. Because it's not the gift, it's the giver that God is really interested in. The Lord loveth not the cheerful gift, but the cheerful giver. It's not the offering, it's the offerer that the Lord really is interested in. And it can be done with uh, such a way the Lord will not accept it. Now the church will. If you, uh, if you have a thousand dollars, the church will accept it, but the Lord won't accept it. Isn't that something? You may sing with such great ability and technique and tone quality and so forth, and people come up and say, my brother, that was tremendous, and they will applaud. But if the offer was not right, the offering may have impressed a lot of people, but God is not impressed except with the heart. And I may preach and teach and people say, man, that was tremendous, wasn't that something? But it's not the gift that God is interested in. He's judging the giver. And he doesn't look with the eyes of people. He sees with a different set of eyes and he judges from a different standard and he is interested in the giver. And any gift, Offered to God, the acceptability of any gift is determined by the acceptability of the giver. Whether that's in finances, whether that's in solos, whether that's in choir, whether that's in preaching, whatever way we offer our gift, he said, don't do it. First, he said, on the program, be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Why? Because the condition of the giver is of far more consequence than the gift itself. And don't go through the, the, the meaningless exercise of offering gifts that are unacceptable to God if our heart's condition is not acceptable to God. First, he said, go if you know your brother has ought against... Well, pastor, what if I have ought against my brother? Should I go to him? No. Repent of it, take care of it yourself, then offer your gift. Now, if you know your brother's at ought against you, you should go and get it, get reconciled but there's no need to tell somebody something they don't already know. You ever had anybody come up to you and say, Pastor, I've had something against you. I, you know, boy, you feel real good. 
That just blesses your socks off. You know, and you, you wonder, you know, what did I do that they wouldn't like me? I mean, how is it possible that anyone would not like me? So, if you have ought, just take care of it between you and the cross and offer your gift. If you know someone has ought against you, remembered someone has ought against you, hold your gift, get things right, then come back and offer the gift. First order of service, reconciliation. Because all offerings without reconciliation are not acceptable. Not acceptable. Offer that which is acceptable in his sight. Important that the giver be acceptable. Because every gift depends upon the acceptability, and there's only one way that we're made acceptable, and that's through the blood. Isn't that right? Calvary covers it all. None of us are, apart from Calvary, acceptable, but through Calvary, we are, each one of us, acceptable in his sight. Yes, I see a hand. The person is, is not a believer. And you, you feel certain there's something that needs reconciliation. Then I would go to her and as, as much as possible within your power uh, offer reconciliation. Uh, it's not always possible for you to produce that. The other person has, has a choice to, of the will to exercise uh, but I think the burden of obligation is upon us to offer the, the reconciliation and the forgiveness. Now, whether or not they will allow that is their responsibility. And uh, there are no guarantees, even with believers. So, people are people, we're just redeemed people, but we're still people, and uh, we struggle with the same set of uh, uh, prejudices and druthers that the world does.